So today we're in part four of a portrait of a living faith. Hearing the word to obey is today's title. He graduated 42nd in a class of 58 at his military academy. But Napoleon was perhaps the greatest military strategist of all time. Among other things, Napoleon addressed the problem of of battlefield communication. See, the noise and smoke of discharging rifles and cannons, the terror and the adrenaline of combat, and the ordinary failures of human speech conspired to impair wartime communication so that commanders had difficult coordinating battle plans. So with field radios more than a century away, he brought to his command center a marginal idiot. A man who could read, but barely a man who had normal intelligence. Before sending orders to his generals by way of couriers, he presented his directions to this marginal idiot. If the marginal idiot understood the directions, he sent them. If not, he rewrote them until the marginal idiot did. See, Napoleon saw that it is not enough to tell the truth. It must be understood and received if it is to do any good. So long before Napoleon, James, the author of this book, understood this principle of successfully transmitting the truth. So this is where our passage begins for us today. Verse uh, 19. Know this, just the first part, part A. Know this, my beloved brothers. You see... As we recall last week when we looked at James 1, 12 through 18 that Jackie, Jackie kindly read for us, Jesus commanded us, Christians, to view the trials of life as a source of joy and not sorrow. So by testing our faith, we reach maturity and so we receive this crown of life, which we talked about is, is everybody gets this crown of life, by the way. It's not earned by our works. We discussed this last week. The crown of life is our salvation. But if we have salvation, there should be some works. We'll talk about that in a few weeks. So, armed with a little theology, the skeptic might have accused, if every test comes from God, isn't he responsible for the test that we fail? If God sends tests, he also sends temptations for the same event is a temptation for one, for, from one perspective and a test from another. If God is sovereign, then he is accountable for all that befalls us, including our failures. You see, but then we recall what verse 13 said. God can't tempt us with evil, and he himself tempts no one. See, we talked about this. God allows stuff to happen. 
He allows you to do what you do. He doesn't control you. But he's going to use your sin to grow you. He's going to use it for tests. You're the one who did whatever it is in the first place. See, if we trust him, love him, and obey him in each trial, he will make us mature and grant us this crown of life. This is how we grow in maturity. And yes, even God's good and perfect gifts can be tests. For evidence of this, let's, let's look at the Tenth Commandment. You shall not cover your neighbor's house. You shall not cover your neighbor's wife or his man, uh, manservant or maidservant, his ox or donkey or anything that belongs to your neighbor, Exodus 20:17. And in Deuteronomy 5, it adds, you shall not set your desire on your neighbor's house or land. See, this passage implies that troubles are only our first problem. You see, every good thing we, can, we see can test or tempt us. See, you can, you can see your neighbor, neighbor's house and go, man, they got a beautiful house. Look at that. There's no rod on the woodwork. They got a nice brickwork on the front. And we could say, I want that. You could put anything in here. You see, this is what coveting is. It's wanting something that you don't have. That you see somebody else want. That's a sin. You see, the side of your neighbor's good house or land or wife can tempt you to sin. Because you think, wow, I want that. Even the side of a donkey will place a car there or a boat. A possession that you want because you don't have it, your neighbor has it. So then should we blame God for making good lands and good donkeys and giving them to others? That's what we're doing. If, we're, it, it, is, is, if we sin because of that, we're saying we're blaming God that caused us to sin because he gave my neighbor something that I want. And, and, and the funny thing is, we just don't. Covet other people's stuff, we covet their gifts. If somebody's good at something, we're jealous. Why didn't God give me that talent? Why do I only why am I only able to do this? Some people covet. A missionary. A missionary will cover another missionary because their mission's successful and this person's working and they've only got two converts in a year and this missionary's got 25,000 converts in a year and they go, wow, 
I want to be like that. Why didn't God give me? That is sin. Yet we're doing God's work. You see, God's good can be turned to sin. Every one of us has got gifts. It shouldn't make us jealous or want what somebody else got because God created you a masterpiece. See, God does not want his gifts to stir up envy between his people. He doesn't want us to be jealous. You see, he simply delights in giving his gifts to his children. See, and, 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 and the gifts are numerous. He gives us gifts. We don't even realize that we have You see, we, are, if you're a Christian, and, and when I use the we statement, I'm using it as Christians, we have loads of gifts that have, that have been given to us. Our salvation is the greatest gift you have. The fact I prayed it earlier. The fact that you are born in America is a gift. Because there's a lot of other places in the world that ain't a good place to live that you could have been born. But you happened to be born here because God wanted you to be born here. That was a gift. See, if you're an unbeliever... Sees his, he can be, have a perverse anger at God's goodness. It may even convict him of sin and lead him to salvation. For God chose to give us birth through the word of truth that we might be kind of first fruits for all he created. Verse 18. You see, if we live actually like we say we believe, Okay, and we don't cover other people's stuff, and we don't. We use this, and we we act differently because of God's word and the trials, the tests that God gives us. We will grow. See, James is writing here. Remember, James is writing to all of his Jewish people that he has, that have been spread around the uh, globe. And he's writing out there from Jerusalem to these Jewish people that the, the word has got out to them and they've become Christians. So he's writing this book to people, Jewish people that have become Christian. So he's writing to his flock and he wants them to know that God called him to to understand trial, it wants them to understand trials correctly, since trials pervade, pervade our lives. And so he adds this, verse 119a. Know this, my beloved brothers. Now that simple exhortation contains a riddle or two. Because, first of all, it concerns the way it's translated, know this. 
it seems to be imperative. Know this. I'm going to tell you something. Okay. But the Greek form can also be indicative. You know this. So even though the difference is small, even if you know this is correct, it contains an implicate, implicate command. You know this and should act accordingly. The second riddle concerns the phrase connection. Is know this, the last word in the teaching of the trials, verses one, chapter 1, 12 through 18, or is it the first word in the next session on the word of God that we're going to be talking about in a minute? Well, smarter people than me seem to think it's both. It contains what we just talked about. That's why we had to rehash last week's sermon. And what we're going to talk about in a few minutes. See, James Reader must take to heart that he has said what he has said about trials. And they must heed what he has, says next about receiving the word and acting upon it. See, the Word of God is the believer's first resource when he or she faces temptations. When we go through a temptation or a trial, in the test, our sinful desires constantly threaten to lure and entice us into sin. The more you sin, the more you'll sin. The way out of that is to go to God's Word. See, we feel this tug of temptation and the word warns us not to deceive ourselves by blaming God for our struggles. We need not to blame others and we should guard ourselves. And if we cannot guard ourselves, we should turn to the gospel. That's where we learn to live rightly. That's how we learn to live rightly is this book right here that, that we don't spend enough time in. For one, it not only is got good ways of making decisions in the book, it points out the sin in your life when you read it. It's a living, breathing book. How many of you have read a, read a book in the Bible and then a few years later read it again and it spoke to you in a different way? That is because it's a living, breathing book. It's not like any other book that's ever been written because this book was written by God. See, we need to attune ourselves to the Word of God. See, the word addresses our interest because as believers, it matches our new nature. See, if you profess your faith in Jesus, you want to attune yourself with Jesus. And how you do that, because God speaks in many, many, many ways. But number one, 
99.9% of the time, he speaks through this book. I'm not saying he'll never speak to you audibly. I'm saying more often than not, he'll speak to you by reading his word. See, James is eager to persuade his brothers to hear the word of God so they can face their trials. He has a passion for wisdom and knowledge and believers and believes the word is the first source of both. See, notice how per- per- pervasive the wisdom knowledge theme is just in chapter 1. In chapter 1, if anyone lacks wisdom, verse 5 says, he should ask God for it. Verse 16 says, we must not be deceived. Verse 18 and 19, when contemplating trials, we must know that failure in a trial may prepare us for the word of truth, the life-giving gospel. And verse 21, we must receive the implanted word which has the power to give life. And verse 22, we must be doers of the word, not hearers only. See, since the word is so effective, we must receive it and let it do its work in us. I believe by reading the book called the Bible, you will change the way you live if you've put your trust in Jesus. Because you can read it as a book and it do you no good. But if you read it because you're a believer and you have put your faith and trust in him, you have the Holy Spirit living within you to help you understand it. You see, we grow through trials by means of God's word. Every single trial you go through would be a lot easier if instead of waiting until it got so deep and you had to ask for a ladder to get out the hole that you've dug yourself in the trials that you're in, when they start, go to his word. Live what you believe. We live in a country that I think is the greatest place on the earth. The Christianity in this country, mediocre at best. Because most people that go to church read their Bibles very rarely, if at all. It's collecting dust on a shelf or it's a nice fixture on a side table so when people come in your house they know you're a Christian because there's a Bible sitting there and you dust it every so often so it doesn't look too bad. Or it's in the back of your car window getting faded. It's not been moved so the cover that was nice is not looking so nice anymore because it's been on your back seat getting the sun heat on it fading. And then we wonder why we're not changing. Why we struggle so much when we're not in his word. 
But, but like I said, most people in America, guess what? They only hear the word when it's read in church. But they, they go to church every week. And they sing praises to God. But if you want a relationship with somebody, relationships work two ways. We pray to God. That's us talking to Him. And we read His Scripture. That's Him talking to us. That's how relationships work. If you're married and, and, and one of you was doing the talking and one of you was only doing the listening ever, it would be pretty, pretty sad. Then it goes, let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, and slow to anger. I want to just stop there a minute. This is why I think preaching through books of the Bible is good. Because if, if there's one thing that I would not want to speak on, it's this topic right here. Be slow to speak and slow to anger. That is not something that I would want to preach on. So if I was preaching topically, you'd never hear me speak on this. Just to tell you that. Because it's something that I struggle with. Okay? That's the beauty of teaching through books of the Bible. Because now if I skipped over that verse, you would go, well, you missed the verse there, Pastor. Why did you miss that verse? Well, we'll get back to that later. For the anger of a man does not produce the righteousness of God. Therefore put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness and receive with meekness the implanted word which is able to save your souls. See, we need to let the word do its work. James says everyone should be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to become angry. For man's anger does not bring about righteousness life that God desires. See, when we take a look at these verses, we see they read like a simple wisdom proverb. You know, you can imagine that, that piece in, in the Proverbs, you know. He could have just snapped it right out there. Believers need wisdom and knowledge, and we learn more by listening than by speaking. Big talkers are rarely good listeners, and angry talkers may not hear a thing. I can guarantee you that angry listeners do not, angry people do not hear a thing, because I don't when I'm angry. When I get angry, you may as well stop talking, because I'm not listening. I'm just going to get angrier and do more talking, which is, is a sin. It's something that I've struggled with. It's actually something that hopefully my wife would tell you I'm better at today than I was 20 years ago when I met Jesus. But I'm still working at it because everything in our life is a work in progress. Progress, we've said this before, progress, not perfection. One day we'll be perfect. None of us are right now. But it, it's really, really important for us to take this and go, 
you know, we should try this. Because I think it will work. If we listened more and spoke less, we could love more. And, and the, the main place I struggle with this is the place that I shouldn't struggle with it because it's the person I love the most. And that, that, that's always the case, isn't it? The person you're closest to usually gets the, the 100% real you. Good or bad, good or bad, they know that everything about you. There is no secrets. When you live with somebody for 50 years, they know you. They start finishing your, your you, you talk, they're finishing your sentences. You see, but that's probably because you've been good listeners too. And you know how each other thinks. But, but we, what happens is, we, should, we, we don't listen and we, we do all the talking and we don't let anybody say anything. And I think we can all be guilty of both of these, by the way. I think some of us can be good listeners sometimes and not good listeners at other times. And it depends who the person is. But I'll tell you this. This verse does not distinguish between the people you love the people you like and the people you don't like. All people you should do this with. You should practice this with all people. And you know what? I think if we did this to all people, when we're in a, a store or somewhere where something's being difficult and we listen to people and we let them talk and we just listen, we'll probably resolve our issues better than if we just go ballistic and start yelling at people. Because they're done listening. We, need, we should be deliberate and not rash in our speech. It, it takes strength to hold the tongue. To wait and deliberate until thoughts grow ripe. You know, that's my problem. My mouth works quicker than my brain. Not a good thing to have. It, it's, all, it, it, it's probably okay in my profession to have some of that. But to have it all the time, it's not a good thing. Because my mouth says stuff my brain doesn't want to say. All the time. Especially when I'm angry. You see. And this is, it, this is just simple wisdom. We all know this. Anger and righteousness cannot be on the same plate together. They're not the same. They don't exist together. If you are an angry person... Now, I'm not saying there's not righteous, righteous, righteous anger because Jesus displays that in the Bible. But most of our anger is not righteous. You see... On the other hand, we often become indignant about trivial things, don't we? A slow driver. We've got to be to an appointment because we left too late to get to the appointment on time. 
So we get mad at the person that left when they should have left. And we're going, get out of the way. Don't you know I've got to be somewhere? Like I'm the most important. And the, the, exactly what I'm going to say. I'm the most important person in the world and you are stopping me being the most important w- person in the world. And, and we all laugh because, you know why we all laugh? Because you've all done it. At some point, you've done this. Or, you're driving down Alpine and there's a million traffic lights. And once you hit one, you hit every single one of them. Now you're bad at the traffic lights. I mean, this is what happens. And the best one is for us guys that watch sports sometimes, or all the time, when the referee, who doesn't know nothing, makes a bad call. We can get angry then. You see... Them things stir our wrath. On the other hand, we ignore true injustice. Especially if it occurs far away from us and falls upon strangers. That's righteous angry anger, by the way. Martin Luther, Martin Luther King Jr. was righteously angry when he protested. He, he didn't do it out of anger. He peacefully protested and he, he was doing it for a righteous cause. People were being mistreated, so he stood up for people. That's righteous anger. And he didn't have to really get loud. And he really didn't get angry like I get angry sometimes. He was angry but did it civilly. See, so there is a good way to do it. But sadly, our anger is often burdened with self-importance, self-assertion, intolerance, and stubbornness because it's not fair for me. Because I'm the most important person in the room. I should get my way. And really, when I think about it, I really, because this is me, I act like a baby. Because that's what babies do. That When babies need feeding or need something or want something because they're the most important person in the room to them, by the way, because they know no difference. They scream and yell. I'm saying I'm more important. When I do this, or you do it, you're saying you're the most important person in the room and you will listen to me because I'm more important than you. If we could change this in ourselves to say, let me listen to your side. And actually let it sink in. Because I'm telling you, there's some times I've got angry with people and then went away and thought about it and go, oh crap, they were right. 
And then, back in the day I wouldn't do this, but now I feel guilty and I have to go and apologize to these people because I have shame and guilt, which I should have for the way I acted. Because sometimes when we're just yelling and not listening, we don't hear everything correctly. And definitely, this sort of anger makes it difficult to get along with other people. See, it also makes it difficult to get along with God. For anger makes us slow to listen, and if we're slow to listen, we'll be slow to receive His Word. See, I think that's why sometimes we don't read our Bible. Because we don't like the life that we're living because we think God's to blame for what's happening to us. So why would we go listen to his word? Because he's the one who put me in the problem in the first place. See, that James says in verse 21, Therefore put away all filthiness and rampant and wickedness and receive with meekness the implanted work which is able to save our souls. When we take a first look at this, that that verse, it seems backwards. Because he says, Therefore, put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness and receive the meekness, the implanted word, which is able to save your souls. But we know that we receive God's mercy before we can change. We readily understand this second commandment of the meekness. It just means to listen well. To be meek means to, to, for us to shun argument and to be gentle, docile, and teachable before the word. See, but it seems that this should be the first commandment. See, one must receive the implanted word which saves us. When James first commands that we put away wickedness and tells us to receive the word and its salvation, second, he seems to imply that reform is a precondition to hearing the word of faith. But no one can put off wickedness for receiving the word. Rather, it is the word implemented in our hearts and saving us that enables us to put off wickedness. So to solve this problem... Notice first that to put off filth is to put away the old sinful way of life. In the Bible, by the way, whenever they talk about physical filth, it stands for spiritual filth. I say this a lot. Try to make the outside like you want the inside to look like. You find some people, uh, they dress like slobs and... It reflects their hearts. But, but, and that's what the Bible says. Scripture depicts sinners as people who are dressed in filthy clothes. In Isaiah 64, 6, Zechariah 3, 3 through 4. And then to change these clothes is a metaphor for conversion and a new way of life. Zechariah 3, 4 through 9. Ephesians 4:22 through 24 and 5:26 through 27 talks about that. 
True believers also keep themselves unstained by the word, James 1.27 says. So James commands us to put away spiritual evil in all forms. How can we do this? Ultimately, James says, the word of God must do this work. See, though the word of God gives birth to his children, it discloses our true it, it discloses our true condition. It shows us who we really are. See, it describes our needs of God's mercy and directs us to that mercy. It says no one can simply put off all wickedness. The word of God implanted in my heart, in the heart, can change a heart. Why then does James say we should put away wickedness before he says we should receive the word with meekness? Have you noticed the grass isn't growing much? But the weeds are. I have to mow this afternoon. Because I have some weeds that are this long. They're just, I don't even know what they are. They're long skinny things. With, they don't, the dogs don't like them because they tickle them. But, so I've got to mow my front yard because they've got these weeds in their yard. You know, it's funny how weeds grow, isn't it? Do you know what weeds are like? They're like sin. You see... Just as it's a bad year right now for, for, for weeds, it's, it's a bad year for sin. Because it's always a bad year for sin. See, it grows and it abounds, so we must wage war against it. And our weapon in this war is the word which is able to save our souls. See, the saving work of the word extends far beyond the day of salvation in the New Testament. In the New Testament, salvation is three phases. See, salvation is a past event. Jesus died 2,000 years ago. He accomplished our salvation in the past. And we received that salvation the day we believed. So that's a past event. Salvation is also a future event. See, because our deliverance is never completed until Christ returns, judges men and angels, sends evildoers away from his presence and restores the heavens and the earth. And salvation is a present reality. Something we seize and work out day by day. You see, James knows salvation is past, present, and future. But his concern in our text is the present. The word of God empowers daily growth as we travel the road of salvation. We're not going to be saved. We're either saved or not saved. But we're on this road of salvation. So, James 1, 18 through 21 says this. The word does three things. First, it gives us birth. So we become God's first fruits. 
uniquely dedicated to him. That was verse 18. Second, it promotes righteousness. That's verse 20. And third, it saves our souls from the day of salvation through all eternity. Verse 21. So, just in James, we've got three parts. The way it saves us. The salvation. But here's the thing. If you don't read your Bible, how is the Bible going to do its job? If you're only in the Word on Sunday morning for an hour and a half, how do you expect to grow? I mean, it's been dry. Sin tends to grow whether you water it or not. But your righteousness doesn't. Your faithfulness doesn't. It needs to be fed. It needs to be watered. If you don't water your flowers, if you've got flowers in the yard, they will die. They've not adapted like weeds have adapted. For whatever reason that is. You have to water them. The, the weeds don't need water, obviously, because they just keep growing. That's what the sin is doing in your life. It keeps growing. And if, if you don't feed the righteousness, the sin is just going to overpower. So if, if, if for an hour and a half a week, you're under God's word, but the rest of the time, the rest of the time, you're not. You're only getting fed You're only getting watered one day a week. How is that going to change you? How is it going to disciple you? It goes on to say, But be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man who looks at... at, Intently at his natural face in the mirror. For he looks at himself and goes away. And at once forgets that he, what he was like. But the one who looks into the perfect law. The law of liberty. And preserves. Preservers. Being no hearer who forgets. But a doer who acts. He will be blessed in his doing. See, be hearers and doers of the word. Since the word has the power to save souls, James says. But careless listening, listening that never leads to action, is just self-deception. It's like going to a class. If you go, if you go to a class, okay, And you go to study whatever it is. Whatever you want to be better at. If you go to a cooking class. Okay. But you don't. If you just. Listen and don't. Do any of the steps. You're never going to learn. You're never going to learn. If you just go and watch. You're never going to learn. See, you need to 
set some things into action. I believe and will always believe that Christianity costs you something. I'm never going to tell anybody that it's not it, it's 100% free because it's not. Because here's the problem with it, with Christianity. It's not a problem in my book, but it's a problem for some people. Jesus doesn't just offer to be your Savior. If he's your Savior, he is also your Lord. So before you became a Christian, you used to serve all kinds of, of things. You probably don't even know them. You wouldn't even think you were serving them, but you were. But now... It's going to cost you because you've got to give up certain things. Because now, you're not just a hearer of the word. You have to become a doer of the word because you have accepted Christ into your life. And, and you have to start acting out what you believe. See, if we fail to connect our creed, our belief, and our conduct, James says we deceive ourselves. I mean, the Greek term can also mean defraud ourselves. Both translations make perfect sense. We deceive ourselves if we say we hear the word, but do not follow it. We also defraud ourselves if we fail to heed the word, for we miss the opportunity to gain maturity by laying hold of the word. See, if I told my teenage child when they were teenagers... You have to be home by 10 o'clock. But he arrived at 10.45. Because he was doing something trivial with his buddies, watching a movie he's probably watched 10 times. I might say something like this when he comes in the door. Didn't you hear me say, I expect you home by 10? And he might reply heard, but I was watching a movie with my friends. And I could say, if you didn't obey me, you didn't really hear me. He only deceives himself if he thinks he truly heard me, though he casually disregards my message. Yet by his action, he also defrauds himself of a strong trust relationship with his father. Thus, my son would both deceive and defraud himself. See, in, in verse 1, in chapter 1, 24, James develops the point with a simple but effective illustration. Anyone who hears the word without doing it is like a man who peers into a mirror and sees his face, but immediately forgets what he looks like. See, the image James is suggesting shows us two things. First, Scripture is a mirror for our souls. Just as we gaze in a physical mirror to in, inspect and perhaps improve our physical appearance, so we should gaze into the spiritual mirror to inspect and improve our spiritual appearance. Second, like a mirror, Scripture shows us our sin, it, it, our need for repentance and the promise of grace. It reveals our need 
for amendment. You see, therefore we should remember that we see long enough to mend what is amiss. See, we can beautify our souls by dispatching our sins and our vices, but it is folly to see our flaws then forget them at once. See, we humans gaze at ourselves all too carelessly. See, we peer into a mirror momentarily each morning. Occasionally, we, we even investigate the image. Probably women more than men. When we're shaving. And you look at yourself. And I go, this is what I say. Damn, I think I'm getting grayer. Or you might say, hey, am I receding? Or how many, how many wrinkles did I develop just last night? See? Or look at yourself and say, I think it's time for a new haircut and a new skincare regimen because I keep breaking out. But you see, time rushes on. We organize our hair, we shave our face or apply our makeup. Then we leave, quickly forgetting what we look like. Since there's a little effect on the days. This disinterest is, is sensible, but it can cause embarrassment too. If there is a, a flaw that we should have remedied, like you got something stuck in your teeth and you start talking to people and they're like looking at you going, I was going to put bugger in your nose, but I changed it to something on your teeth. But, but you're talking to somebody and they're just standing because you've got something stuck on your teeth. And then I'm one of them people, do I tell them they've got something stuck on their teeth? Or should I just leave it for the next person? Or I would hope, by the way, if I ever have something stuck on my teeth that you tell me. But, but we'll see them flaws and sometimes they embarrass us because we didn't really pay attention to ourselves. But spiritually, it is both foolish and dangerous to just gaze into the Word, see our sin, and fail to remedy it. See, as a mirror shows physical flaws, so the Word is a mirror for our soul. So it shows moral and spiritual flaws so that we could remedy them. But to profit from Scripture as a mirror, we must remember that we see and act accordingly, as James said in verse 25. But the one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty, and preserves, being no hearer who forgets, but a doer who acts, he will be blessed in his doing. So, by being doers, we will be blessed. And this isn't blessed like a bunch of cash is going to show up in your bank account or... However, this is just you're going to be blessed because you're going to be living the way God intended you to live. See, God had a plan for how we were supposed to live. And we changed that plan. See, one man observes his face in a mirror, goes away and forgets what he looks like. Another observes a perfect law, preserves, remembers and acts upon it. The first man deceives himself. The second man is blessed. See, believe.
must not be content to read the Bible and rush away. When we read Scripture, we have to gaze into and abide by it. It deserves our attention because, one, it's perfect. And two, it gives liberty. The law is perfect because it reflects God's perfect character. Here's some examples. God's law. Do not murder. God's character. God gives life. God's law. Do not commit adultery. God's character. God is faithful. God's law. Do not steal. God's character. God is generous and he gives good gifts. God's law. Do not bear false witness. God's character. God's word is true. He keeps his promises. God's law. Be kind to orphans, widows, and aliens. God's character. God is kind to orphans, widows, and aliens. That is why we should trust God's word. That is why we should want to be doers. Because there is 613 do's and don'ts in the Bible, in the Old Testament, the laws. 200 and some are, do this and this will be a blessing. And the other other 300 and whatever are, don't do this or else. There's more don't do this or else than there is do this and be blessed. But there is never, if you, if you actually live the law of God, it's not a bad thing. It doesn't make you a Pharisee. It doesn't make you a legalist. The whole Bible is true. We seem to think that we can forget everything else that God has said because Jesus died on a cross. And we don't have to follow any rules anymore because we're saved by grace and grace alone. Which I believe that we're saved by grace and grace alone. But I believe if I have accepted that grace into my life, I will become a doer of of God's word. And the way God wants me to live. Not the way the world wants wants me to live. See, God's law law is also perfect because it's perfectly suited to life in this world. The law includes the law of Moses, the commands of the prophets, and the examples of godly conduct from the Old Testament. When we follow that law, we flourish. When God gave the law, he said, I have brought you out of bondage. And he didn't say, I hereby bring you into bondage. The law doesn't bond you, it frees you. See, James also describes the law as the law of liberty. That is, the law is the source of liberty. See, the law limits our freedom in a way. The law against false witness forbids that we say whatever we please, whenever we please. See, but truth talent also gives you freedom. If children tell you the truth, it grants their parents freedom to trust them, doesn't it? 
If, if a child says, I'm going to go to soccer practice, I will be home by seven, it is liberating to know that when you send that child off, he's going to be back by seven. It is a misery for, for sla- and slavery for parents to lose their trust, to feel that they must always check up on their child. And when we know someone's word is true, it frees us from oaths, contracts, and other human conventions designed to constrain us. See, the Lord is liberating because it is so perfectly suited to, to human life. We thrive when we rest and reflect one day instead of tolling, rushing day after day. You see, we thrive within faithful, committed marriages. See, a man, when he knows he does not need to, a man thrives when he knows he does not need to wonder, does my wife still love me? A woman has peace when she need not wonder, what if my husband abandons me? Should I nurture my career just in case? You know, a common question spouses ask each other is, is, do you still love me? It's a bad question, by the way. We should stop asking that question. This is what we should say. I know you still love me. Could you imagine if you just started saying to your spouse, I know you still love me. The, The difference between just changing the way you ask I know you still love me. And you'll probably get, yes, I do. Instead of, do you, I don't even know why we have to ask a question anyway. We should know that, but, but we do anyway. And we need to change it to, I know you still love me. I'm so grateful that you're my wife. Or I'm so thankful that you're my husband. It will change your life. So James says, God blesses those who gaze into the law. Remember it and do it. Real blessing lies in doing God's will, not simply knowing it. As Jesus said, blessed rather are those who hear the word of God and obey it. That doing is, the do, that doing is concrete concrete and it proves we have true religion as we will find out next week because that's the start of our passage for next week. So James questions his reasons. Has the word been implemented in you? Has it saved your soul? Do you preserve, persevere with the word and with the, the Lord who spoke it? He also commands, if the word is implemented in you, let it show. We should be a light in this world. That is what Jesus calls us to be. And how are you going to be a light if you're not in his word, learning what he wants you to do, learning how he wants you to live your life? And we need to be here. And do us. Because if we say we don't, we're saying scripture lies. 
James does know obedience is not a simple matter. His call to visible obedience may be unflinching, but he knows obedience may be beyond our reach. We need to ask for wisdom and for strength of the implanted word. See, this next passage has a twist concerning our ability to obey. But for now, let us hear his call to receive the word, to heed it, and to live in the freedom it provides. And let's read James 1, 26 through 2, 7 to get ready for next week's sermon on the true test of our faith. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for this word today. We thank you that you are a God who loves us no matter what. But when we became Christians, there was a cost to following you. It's obeying you and learning to live following you. Learning to love people like you love people. And the only way we can do that is to read your word, implant it in our hearts and become doers, not just hearers, God. It's so important to get this message, to understand that this life that you have given us on this earth is to glorify you and you alone. Let us be doers. Help us, God. We are going to fail. But pick us back up. And start again. And again. Help us to to get stronger. By the trials you allowed in our lives. Help us to not grow weary or weak. And to always love your word. And to live it. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.